My name is Rudiger Wolfram. I'm a professor of international law coming from Germany, University of Heidelberg. I'll speak today about fighting terrorism at sea and uh, the options and the limitations under international law, in particular the law of the Sea Convention. Assessing international law rules concerning the suppression of piracy or terrorism at sea related support activities or activities which have uh, been recently assimilated to such activities requires a clear-cut distinction between uh, different scenarios. Acts of piracy as covered uh, by Article 101 of the Law of the Sea Convention, to which I will refer as a convention in my presentation. Acts of violence against a ship, its passengers or its crew, similar to piracy, but not covered by piracy. Acts using a ship as a weapon against navigational safety. Using the sea as means of uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or transporting them. Using the sea uh, for terrorist activities or supporting them. And uh, finally, using the sea as a platform as, uh, to launch a strike against a state or a ship uh, as the case may be. International treaty law and customary international law have developed mechanisms to suppress acts of violence at sea, such as piracy or other such acts. These mechanisms, however, do not embrace modern threats. Uh, for example, they did not explicitly provide for measures in response to ships being used as weapons. This situation has changed with the adoption of the 2005 uh, protocol to the Convention for the Suppression of Unlawful Acts against the Safety of Maritime Navigation, the so-called Rome Convention. This protocol, I mean the 2005 protocol, had to strike a balance between the freedom of navigation on one side and the security interests of individual states on the other. Further, it has been felt that increasing proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and the uncrewed trade in such weapons or the relevant hard or software may cause an additional threat to international peace and security. Mechanisms to restrict such trade are interwoven with uh, those measures against terrorism. Let me first deal with the traditional uh, measures uh, on the elimination of uh, violence at sea. The international rules in question endow all states with the right to take measures for the suppression of piracy, which is considered an international crime. The international rules on piracy should not be considered a relic of the past. By the way, already Caesar was fighting piracy since he had been uh, taken uh, hostage by pirates. The existing rules for the suppression of piracy, which date far back, are inadequate, as I will demonstrate. One of the major deficiencies of international rules concerning the suppression of piracy, already codified in the Geneva Convention on the High Seas of 1958, and repeated in the Convention on the Law of the Sea is their narrow definition of piracy. Uh, 
According to Article 101 of the Convention, only those acts which have been committed illegally for private ends, and I emphasize private ends by the crew or the passengers of a private ship or private aircraft on the high seas against another ship or another aircraft or against persons or property on board such ship or aircraft are considered piracy. So the reference to private ends limits the scope of application of the respective rules. It excludes acts of violence undertaken for different reasons, such as for political reasons, to cause unrest, to terrorize a government, etc. This is not piracy. Another limitation stems from the fact that only acts on the high seas and in the exclusive economic zones are to be qualified or may be qualified as pirate acts, but not those committed in the coastal waters of a state. The rationale behind that limitation is that the coastal states are meant to fight against such acts, whether they are able to do so or not. Actions against pirates may be taken in accordance with the Articles 105 of the Law of the Sea Convention by every state. According to Article 107 of that convention, a pirate ship may be seized only by a warship or another government ship or military aircraft. The courts of the respective states will decide upon the adequate penalties. In former times, the captain could do it himself and uh, they will decide on the confiscation of ship and cargo. Piracy belongs to the very few crimes, including, for example, the crime of genocide, to which the principle of universality applies. This means the right to take enforcement action is vested in all states, irrespective of that state, if that state or uh, persons of that state have suffered from the respective act. Taking the wording of the convention, literally, it seems that the possibilities for fighting piracy effectively are limited. Currently, this is a prevailing view of uh, scholars. There are good reasons for taking a different position. States are under an obligation to cooperate in the repression of piracy according to Article 100 of the Convention. Reading Article 100 and 107 of the Convention, together it can be argue, argued that states may not lightly decline to intervene against pirates. This is particularly important in respect of coastal states. Piracy relies for its logistical support uh, and for the sale of goods and even ships on the cooperation with the coastal state. This makes the relevant local authorities associates to piracy. Such cooperation between the coastal state and pirates in violation of Article 100 of the Convention is therefore also an international crime. On the basis of the existing rules, a warship may not intervene against acts of violence by one ship against another private ship or against the persons or property on board of such a ship carried out in the coastal waters. I've referred to that. However, 
Other justifications for appropriate actions countering such uh, acts do exist. A warship witnessing an attack against a merchant ship in the coastal waters of another state carried out by a pirate or a so-called pirate can render assistance for a ship in distress. Although Article 98 of the Convention, this provision refers to distress, covers or was meant to cover a ship in, under distress in, for natural disasters or after a collision, nevertheless a pirate attack is distress and therefore gives uh, the justification to get into action. According to general international law, rescue actions may be taken by a warship on the basis of humanitarian inter intervention. I'm fully aware that the notion of humanitarian intervention has been discussed controversially but in state practice, but this was meant as far as humanitarian intervention is concerned for territory. It should be less controversial if a ship enters into action to free persons who have been taken hostage by pirates. Finally, as I've said, coastal states have to cooperate. If a coastal state fails to cooperate for one or the other reason, cannot one assume that he uh, is in agreement or accepts a such intervention by a foreign warship? Actually, one may assume such uh, that consent is being given, since one may assume that states want to live up to their obligation under international law. Even if one uses these mechanisms to fill the gaps which do exist in the Law of the Sea Convention, one must, have, must accept, unfortunately, that these remedies only on spot situations. There is no possibility to engage against pirates on a wider scale. This can, however, be remedied by the Security Council. Sure, one may argue it's not uh, the objective of the Security Council to protect against piracy, but I may remind everybody that the Security Council also took a position in respect of the Lockerbie incident and therefore has been engaged in the defense of international communication. Therefore, why couldn't the Security Council do the same to fight piracy? Let me now come to other forms of violence at sea. Special international agreements attempt to fill the gap which I have been indicating. The Rome Convention for the Suppression of Unlawful Acts Against the Safety of Maritime Navigation of 1988, together with an associated protocol for the suppression of unlawful acts against the safety of fixed platforms, is an attempt to do so. The Rome Convention protects navigation as such as well as individual ships. Prohibited acts include the seizure or taking control of a ship by force or the threat thereof. The performance of acts of violence against a person on board of a ship, if that act is likely to endanger the safety of navigation of that ship, the destruction or damaging of a ship 
or its cargo, which is likely to endanger the safe navigation of that ship. And the placement of devices on a ship, which causes destruction or damage of the ship, which is endangering safety of navigation as such. I could continue on that. Uh, the offenses are clearly listed. Uh, in that respect, the conventions covers some forms of terrorism against ship or the freedom of navigation, but nevertheless, it is limited. According to Article 3 of that convention, it is an offense to unlawfully and intentionally destroy a ship or cause damage to a ship or its cargo in a way which is likely to endanger the safety of navigation of that ship. Using the ship as a weapon against harbor facilities, similar to the airplanes used in the 11th September 2001 against the Twin Towers in New York, which results in the destruction of that ship may be considered an offense under the Rome Convention. However, the offense would not cover the gravity of such crime sufficiently, since it neither reflects the damage done by the use of the ship or nor the uh, threat such use would pose, in this case, to navigation in general or to other sh persons or other ships. The 2005 protocol to the Rome Convention now tries to cover this gap. This uh, uh, protocol, technically it's in a, another international agreement, is a direct response to the uh, events of 11 September 2001. This protocol adds a new article to the Rome Convention, so-called Article 3 bis, uh, which states that a person commits an offense within the meaning of the Rome Convention if that person unlawfully and intentionally commits one of the acts listed if it is the purpose of this act to intimidate a population, to compel a government or an international organization to do or to abstain from doing any act, it was necessary to describe this offense so clearly for the reason that so far there doesn't exist a definition of terrorism. Further, under the new instruments, person a person commits an offense within the meaning of the convention if that person unlawfully and intentionally transports other persons on board a ship knowing that these persons have committed such an offense uh, under the Rome Convention or are likely to commit such an offense. Uh, the annex to this protocol lists nine treaties defining such offenses. The crimes covered mean that the protocol goes far beyond fighting terrorism. It may also be used uh, to enforce a non-proliferation treaty. It is in this respect, uh, uh, in particular, which has been, uh, it is this aspect in particular which has been most controversially discussed during the negotiations. Let me give you a brief assessment so far. Although the Rome Convention has a broad territorial scope of application, and this scope has been broadened as far as the offenses are covered by the 2005 protocol, the sanctions mechanism provided by these two instruments is limited. 
The obligations of states' parties regarding suppression of offences under the Rome Convention are based on the old principle audidere audiudicare in Latin, which means you either prosecute or you extradite. Criminal prosecution is reserved for those states exercising criminal jurisdiction in accordance with the Rome Convention in respect of the offender or the offense. The 2005 protocol provides only for marginal improvements. The inadequacy of this particular aspect of the 2005 protocol becomes particularly evident if compared with the respective rules on piracy. Prosecution on account of piracy is based on, upon a broader concept of criminal jurisdiction, the principle of universality. Whereas piracy is considered a truly international offense, offenses under the Rome Convention are not. The Rome Convention acknowledges only that several states have the right to prosecute, not more and not less. Apart from that, I would like to mention that the deterrent effect of the Rome Convention is zero. Those who hijacked the planes uh, which were led against the Twin Towers committed similar offenses they were not fearing prosecution by the United States. Uh, suicidal offenders you can't threaten by imprisonment. The rules of international law concerning the suppression of privacy provide for the possibility of taking direct action to suppress an act of piracy, whereas the Rome Convention concentrates on the prosecution of offenders only. This gap constitutes the most significant deficiency of the Rome Convention, including the 2005 Protocol. Uh, the, this lacuna I've been mentioning is only remedied in part by this 2005 Protocol. Articles Eight of the Rome Convention covers the responsibilities and roles of the masters of the ship, the flag state and receiving state, uh, but it adds very little and I can only repeat what I've said, the deterring effect is limited. Apart from that, there is very a limited amount, a limited possibility to investigate such a ship earlier. In this respect the Rome uh, Convention, including the Protocol of 2005, uh, cannot really uh, compare favorably with conventions on the protection of fish. It is much easier to inspect a fishing vessel for having caught illegally or used illegal means of fishing and therefore one may say, uh, that's an exaggeration, fish is more important than human beings in uh, those uh, rules on inter of international dealing on one side, fishing, and on the other, fight against terrorism, or if you say it positively, for the protection of human life at sea. Let me now come to the issues of weapons of mass destruction. 
here I have to introduce you into the so-called proliferation security initiative. This proliferation security initiative, PSI, was announced by uh, the United States president in 2003, and it is meant to interdict, and I quote from his statement, transfer or transport of weapons of mass destruction, their delivery systems and related materials to and from states and non-state actors of proliferation concern. PSI has uh, developed through a series of meetings and agreements. The underlying rationale of the initiative is to reduce the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and the related technology. And in this respect, related technology goes quite far. The 11 core participants developed a set of principles on 4 September 2003. The statement of interdiction principles, claiming that the initiative is not violating international law, calls upon PSI participants, as well as other countries, not to engage in the trade of weapons of mass destruction and related technology with countries of proliferation concern, and to permit their own vessels and aircraft to be searched if suspected of violating or endangering the principle of non-proliferation of mass weapons of mass destruction as provided for in PSI. The statement further establishes a procedure for the exchange of information on suspicious vessels. The initiative is open for accession by other states. Apart from that, participating states are called upon to conclude shipboarding agreements with other states. And this is particularly meant to provide for a legal basis to board ships under so-called flags of convenience. The core commitments of interest here are, and I quote, not, trans no, not to transport or to assist in the transport of weapons of mass destruction, boarding of their own vessels in their respective internal waters and territorial sea areas, as well as on the high seas, if there's a reasonable ground for suspicion that they are engaged in proliferation activities, consider to provide consent to boarding of their vessels by the authorities of other participating states, and finally take measures against foreign vessels in the seas covered by their territorial sovereignty and in, in, in their respective contiguous zone. I will concentrate on this last point, which is the most uh, problematic one. The legal basis of PSI, which has been frequently referred to as an international partnership of state, has not been clarified fully. It is being claimed that the PSI conforms to the law of the sea, at least it's been stated, and that the various jurisdictional standards articulated in the law of the sea convention, on, one may further argue that it, that it in general reflects the attitude of the UN Security Council to stop the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. As far as the format is concerned, it constitutes a collection of, one may say, bilaterals, agreements, rather informal ones, constituting a collective partnership without amounting to an international 
organization. You may qualify it, to use a modern term, as an international network amongst states. Most problematic is subparagraph 4D of the statement, which calls on particip PSA participants, and that is the last point in full, to which I've already alluded to, to take appropriate actions to, firstly, stop its search in their internal waters, territorial seas, or contiguous zones, vessels that are reasonably suspected of carrying such cargoes to or from states or non-state actors of pro proliferation concern and to seize such cargoes that are identified and, secondly, to enforce conditions on vessels entering or leaving their ports, internal waters or territorial seas that are reasonably suspected of carrying such cargoes, such as requiring such vessel to be subject to boarding, search, and seizure of such cargo prior to entry." End of quotation. Let me now deal with the interception in territorial waters. As long as the interception takes place in uh, the internal waters, there is no legal problem involved. The situation is more complicated in territorial waters, for in territorial waters, flags under foreign vessels, uh, foreign, uh, ships under foreign flags have the right of innocent passage. According to Article 25 of the Convention, coastal states may take action against the passage which is not innocent. And this is now the crucial point. According to Article 19 of the Convention, a passage is not innocent if it is, and I quote, prejudicial to the peace, good order, or security of the coastal state. Or, if the ship is engaged in one of the activities listed in Article 19, Paragraph 2 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Transporting weapons of mass destruction is not mentioned in Paragraph 2, which most consider to constitute an ex exhaustive list of activities which render passage not innocent. For that reason, recourse is necessary to paragraph 19, paragraph 1 of the Convention. However, this does not solve the problem if the vessel is merely in transit, since according to this paragraph, only such passage is not innocent, which is prejudicial to the peace, good order, or security of that particular coastal state. Therefore, if there are vessels, uh, missiles on board, let's say in the territorial sea of Germany, and which are meant to be transported to, let's say, China, uh, then Article 19, Paragraph 1 of the Convention does not give Germany, at least as it stands at the moment, the possibility to intervene. Although according to Article 21 of the Convention, coastal states States have the authority to adopt laws and regulations. In accordance with international law, this competence is limited. None of these issues listed in uh, this provision uh, would cover the mere transit of weapons of mass destruction. In contrary, the transport of nuclear substances, according to Article 23 of the Convention, is not in contradiction to innocent passage. Most people keep to forget this provision, particularly 
those who are in the moment arguing in favor of PSI. Uh, this is a little bit problematic. Therefore, I, have to, uh, I would like to state, one has to somehow overcome the narrow confines of these, these competences of the coastal state, which is only meant to protect its own interests rather than the interests of other states. This can be done by a decision of the Security Council. If the Security Council would ban the transport of weapons of mass destruction in general, then this would be a basis for the coastal states to take action. As long as this is missing, the legal ground for PSI is somewhat shaky. The situation in Straits is actually similar to the one I've discussed so far. Now, when it comes to the interception of vessels on the high seas, I would like uh, to refer to the fact that vessels on the high seas are under the exclusive jurisdiction of the flag state, and one needs the consent of the flag state to concerned to search a vessel on the high seas. When uh, the 2005 protocol to the Rome Convention was discussed, there was the idea that there would be an automatic or quasi-automatic consent, but this uh, did not materialize. Therefore, here again, only a resort to a Security Council resolution would be helpful, and in fact, there exists one. Security Council Resolution 1540 of 2004 provides for such a legal basis. It states that proliferation of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons as well as their means of delivery constitutes a threat to international peace and security. And the resolution requires all states to adopt and enforce appropriate effective laws which prohibit any non-state actor to transport, transfer, or use nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons and their means of delivery. But if you have li listened carefully, there's no mentioning of intercepting vessels on the high seas. Actually, if you look into the legal history of that resolution, this was suggested but not adopted. Nevertheless, uh, this Security Council resolution is being used as a basis for intercepting vessels on the high seas, although you may consider that to be on shaky grounds. Another option to protect against uh, terrorism is uh, to refer to the notion of self-defense. Security Council uh, 1368 of the year 2001, of 12 September 2001, one day after the attack on the Twin Towers, the Security Council condemned the acts of terrorism carried out on 11 September 2001 and emphasized the necessity, and I quote, to combat by all means threats to international peace and security, end of quotation, caused by terrorist acts. In the same resolution, the Security Council reconfirmed, invoking the wording of Article 51 of the UN Charter, and I quote again, 
the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense. The wording of Article 51 of the UN Charter does not limit self-defense to attacks undertaken by a state only. This statement may come to you as a surprise. For many years, everybody felt it did otherwise. Look into the text. The drafters of the convention were probably wiser than later commentators. For all later commentators read the word state into that provision. It should be further noted that according to Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter, use of force is prohibited in international relations, which implies that such obligations, uh, uh, obligation applies to interstate relations only. This is a common view. However, it is also of uh, relevance that after the adoption of the UN Charter, there was a predominant practice and respect uh, respective opinion jurists that self-defense could be exercised against attacks by states or also by groups controlled by states. The attacks of the 11th September of uh, 2001 have changed the previous situation demonstrated by UN Security Council. What seems to be the essence now is a view that a target state could adopt uh, measures of self-defense against attacks launched by non-governmental organizations, such as, for example, Al-Qaeda. This uh, new, or you should rather say modified, interpretation of the right to self-defense reflects the fact that states have ceased to have the monopoly I may say, on waging of war. Warlike activities having identical negative effects upon international peace and security may equally well be carried out by terrorists uh, having an international network, especially if such terrorists are uh, well financed and well organized. This mechanism Designed, the mechanisms designed to restore international peace and security, whether they are of a multilateral, regional, or unilateral nature, have to reflect this change in international relations. This, however, raises a particular issue, namely, against whom may these countermeasures be directed? For these non-governmental groups will be uh, situated in a state. Uh, one, uh, I might uh, point your attention to the attacks launched against Afghanistan or camps of the Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. It is well established that all action of self-defense have to meet the test of proportionality. And this is the legal solution for the dilemma I've just been indicating. Uh, this is also true for act actions of self-defense against ships under the control of terrorists and uh, ships used by terrorists as weapons. However, the array of possible effective measures 
against such ships is limited. Their interception and destruction may be the only effective course of action. Measures against ships under the control of terrorists taken by or on behalf of the flag state is also an issue to be discussed. On the highest ship, uh, seas, ships are, as I already indicated, under the jurisdiction of the flag state, and it is up to the flag state to, to take action and to enforce international law. The flag state principle is one of the central elements guaranteeing freedom of navigation and guaranteeing that the rule of law is upheld in an area which is beyond the territorial jurisdiction of any state. Namely, the flag state is meant to ensure that international law is applied appropriately and effectively, I should add, on the high seas. Otherwise, on the high seas, vessels would operate in a legal vacuum. Similarly, the flag state principle concentrates the enforcement powers which may be taken against the ship in one authority, namely the flag state. Otherwise, a ship would be the target of many uh, different states with the negative consequences. Only if flag states exercise their jurisdiction effectively and thus ensure that vessels do not violate the applicable international rules, will other states refrain from taking action against such vessels. This is perhaps not always being recognized by flag states in the moment. If a vessel has been brought under the control of a terrorist group and which are using that vessel as a, uh, as a weapon against another state, what are the possibilities to intervene? First of all, as I have mentioned already, there is a possibility of self-defense. Secondly, there is a possibility for the Security Council under Chapter 7. But one could uh, uh, consider other chains of arguments. Ships in the hands of terrorists constitute a mortal danger to the citizens of a targeted state. And the duty to intervene can be based on the general principle of safeguarding human life. This is not only a principle governing the law of the sea, but can equally be based upon the obligation to protect human life under international law rules concerning the protection of human rights. The flag state may consent to such intervention, and in such a case, such an intervention does not raise an international uh, legal problem of international law. But what is if the state flag state does not give its consent? Here, one has to either resort to self-defense, security council, or one may argue if uh, the uh, a flag state has not clearly said, I do not give my consent, but has kept silence, one may presume the existence of such consent. There's a, uh, one final argument, I'm hesitant to refer to that, 
a ship under the control of terrorists can we still consider that to be under the flag of a flag state? Could one not argue that this vessel is a vessel without nationality? It's just an idea and I leave it open for further consideration since this idea is a very dangerous one. You may at home think about it. Let me touch upon a totally different aspect, but it is a very important one. So far I've spoken about measures taken against a vessel which constitutes a concrete danger. But very often, if a ship is identified as such, measures may come too late. And therefore, there is a new tendency, namely to take precautionary measures. Security Council Resolution 1368 and 1373 also indicate that terrorist attacks of such or a similar scale may be considered to pose a threat to international peace and security, and that the Security Council may take appropriate action on the basis of Article 39 of the UN Charter. Uh, this is of particular relevance for the suppression of terrorism by preventing the freedom of navigation from being misused in order to support terrorism. Already the preamble of the International Convention for the Suppression of the Financing of Terrorism of 1999 states that terrorism is a violation of the purposes and principles of the UN Charter to maintain international peace and security. The UN General Assembly has, in several resolutions, condemned international terrorism and called upon states to take steps and counteract the financing of terrorism and terrorist organizations. Security Council 1368 uh, calls upon the international community to redouble their efforts to prevent and suppress terrorist acts, including by increasing cooperation. Security Council 1373 is more specific. It's, uh, been, uh, it has been decided under Chapter 7 and states that all states shall, and I quote, take action, necessary steps to prevent the commission of terrorist acts, including by provision of early warning of other states by exchange of information. And it continues to say, afford one another the greatest measure of assistance in connection with criminal investigation or criminal proceedings relating to the financing or support of terrorist attacks. Finally, Security Council 1377 underlined the obligation of states to deny financial and all other forms of support and safe haven to terrorists and those supporting terrorism. These Security Council resolutions are claimed to form the necessary international legal basis for the marine interception operations undertaken by various naval units in the Indian Ocean and off the coast of Somalia. Sure, the objective goes into that direction, but the wording could have been more precise. Precautionary measures have also been taken, and now let me come to 
uh, more unilateral actions on part of port authorities in an attempt to provide stricter control of ship's cargo in general. It may be too late to investigate the cargo at the ports of destination. Therefore, a policy has been developed to check on cargo at the port of departure. The so-called Container Security Initiative set up by the United States attempts to extend a zone of security outward by shifting security and screening activities to the border of the exporting country, I emphasize exporting country. On 19 September 2002, Singapore became the first country to sign an agreement with the United States allowing U.S. customs inspectors to ensure that cargo shipping containers bound for the United States are not being used for terrorist attacks. This system seems to mirror one which has already uh, set up between the United States and America and Canada for the ports of Halifax, Montreal and Vancouver. Several other ports authority have agreed to join the U.S. Container Safety Program, and more have joined since the decision not to join has a repercussions when United States ports are reached. In the first phase, the, two 20, the, the, top, the first phase, the top 20 ports that send the largest volume of container tra traffic to the United States have been included. In the second phase, Ports of political or strategic significance have been included. Currently, more than 50 ports throughout the world participate in this initiative. Most of them being European or Asian, actually so far only one port from Africa, that's Durham, South Africa. <coughs> the main problem with this in initiative is that it protects only one state. Uh, perhaps uh, that is a political and practical must. But it is a question whether it would have not been more efficient if such initiative had been developed by the IMO and would have been undertaken on a truly multilateral, multilateral rather than a unilateral basis. Let me conclude. A perusal of the existing international law instruments to be used for the suppression of terrorism at sea or like activities indicates that these rules are in a state of transition. This is due to different reasons. The most prominent of them are that the community of states has to deal with a new type of organized crime and a new type of offender. International terrorism works within an international network which makes it easy to switch the basis from which one country to another. Modern forms of communication allow weapons and other necessary supplies to be transported to, be, uh, to the targeted states. The criminals, in particular those carrying out such attacks, are not threatened by the fear being later to be imprisoned. The Convention on the Law of the Sea and subsequent 
special international agreements have responded to this new challenge. They should be seen and assessed as a whole. This legal development clearly indicates that international law as such and the procedures for amending it are flexible enough to react to new challenges. What is remarkable is a shift of emphasis to be witnessed in these new regimes, namely the focus on precautionary measures. However, it is not possible to end on a clearly positive note. Although piracy as well as terrorist activities are clearly acts of an international nature, targeting all states, only some of the legal responses have been adopted on the international level. In particular, the Proliferation Security Initiative and the Container Security Initiative do not reflect a multilateral, but rather a unilateral, or if you want, a bilateral approach. Why is it necessary to marginalize international organizations in this respect, which would have and could have done a more uh, effective, effective job by coming up with mechanisms which provide protection for truly all states. Thank you for your attention.